but I am really thankful and eager uh, to share uh, in this sermon series with you. It's called City on a Hill, uh, which uh, is taken from Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus says, I think this will be up there on the screen for you in verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light so shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So this kind of introduction to the the series here is that's what the church is. The church is a city on a hill. It's a metaphor really for Jerusalem, how Jerusalem was supposed to be the center of God's presence and his life and his love and his light was to shine forth from all of there and from there to all the nations. And now Jesus is saying that to his followers, to us as the church. And so in this series, we're going to explore probably, I think it's the next eight weeks, how Jesus changes everything about our lives, from the, the vision of the church to the mission of the church. That would be our, you know, our vision, our mission. And then we're going to look at the values that we are going to have as a church of, of worship and community, faith in life, missional advancement, and justice and mercy. And so all of those ways how Jesus changes everything in us, and then how he wants to bring about change in through us, and ultimately as we wait for him to return for us. So this morning, actually I'm going to have you stand one more time now that you're in John chapter 13, if you'd stand with me. We're going to jump right in. So City on a Hill, yes, that's the series. We're going to jump right into the first topic, which is our vision statement. Our vision statement is that we would be a people who love God because he first loved us, and that we would love our neighbors as ourselves. And so the real theme and thrust of this sermon this morning, this vision sermon, is how the love of Jesus impacts us and then impacts those around us. So just two verses, John 13, verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is the word of the Lord. Father, I do pray that you would help us this morning to hear carefully. Jesus, you encourage us to listen well. I pray against fear, pride, distraction. And I pray that you would indeed speak to our hearts. It might be a moment. It might be a couple of moments. But I pray for each one of us that we would hear from you. I know you love us all and you want to speak to us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your people. Thank you for this gathering in this church. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So basically the roadmap for this sermon is I want to look at this, this passage in John 13, verses 34 and 35 are actually really clear three parts. Okay? He's going to talk about how Jesus loves them. You know, The command to love one another rests upon the fact that Jesus says you're to love one another the way I've loved you. So we're going to spend most of our time this morning looking at how Jesus loves us. And with that kind of foundation set, that pattern laid, then us learning how to love one another becomes actually quite clear. Not easy, but clear. And then we're going to look at the fruit of what happens then. And, you know, he says there, then there's this missional witness. There's this city on a hill effect where when we love one another the way Jesus loves us, other people get to peer in and look at it, and they see that light and that life and that love of Jesus emanating. Some people still don't want anything to do with it, and some people are really attracted to it. But in any, in any case, 
it's clear that we belong to Jesus, and we'll see as we get to that point a little bit later, it's clear that Jesus is who he said he was. So the roadmap, number one, is the love of Christ we receive. Number two is the love of Christ that we share. And then number three is the fruit of the love of Christ. So let's jump into number one right now, the love of Christ that we receive. So he tells them to love one another, and context is always important, right? You guys know that. Um, <clears throat> you know, well, I won't go there. Uh, context is always important. And so he tells them to love one another in the context of a very emotionally charged room. Okay, this is the upper room. This is the night before Jesus is going to die. And there's a lot of stuff happening. It's Passover, you know, which is basically the Jewish equivalent to our Christmas. It's the biggest holiday of the year. And they're sitting down at the table. or they're actually laying down on the floor eating. But they're there around the table eating. And there's a lot of emotion. There's a lot of confusion. Jesus has been talking about dying. There's been threats on Jesus' life. They're kind of hoping, you know, Jesus has ridden in on that donkey in the triumphal entry, and people have shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna. It's like there's a lot of stuff happening. This is the last night Jesus knows before he's going to go to the cross, and he's going to spend John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 just with his disciples really trying to get clear to them what he's about and what he wants them to be about. And so it's into that situation that he says it's very important. Like of all the things that he could say, this is what he's going to say. So it rises in importance. I mean, you think about, you know, Judas is just about to leave. Peter is going to say, I'm not going to deny the Lord. And all the rest say, yeah, we're not going to deny either. They're going to deny. So there's all this emotionally charged. It's a, the end of one era and the beginning of another. I mean, I think that resonates a little bit with us here at Trinity and Cornerstone and now New City. And so Jesus wants them to know beyond any shadow of a doubt. And if you read through John 13 through 17, if you did that later this week, you see how many times he reiterates his love and commitment and faithfulness to them. That's what he wants them to know. And so it is such a privilege for me. I love standing up in front of people and saying, if you belong to Jesus, here's what he wants you to know. He really loves you. He is deeply and totally committed to your good. I mean, that statement, Peter said, we read it in 1 Peter chapter 1, is inexpressible and full of glory. He wants to love us in our strengths, in our successes, but he also wants to love us in our confusion, our wandering, and our boredom. So on this dedication Sunday, as we think about moving forward in the excitement of New City Church and we want to be dedicated to what God is doing here, know this first. Good news first is this. Jesus is dedicated to you as his people. Amen? So how does Jesus love us? I think this is up there on the screen for you. John chapter 13 and verse 1. We're going to look at, you know, again, I, I know how much time I have. I'm sensitive to that. You know, how does Jesus love us? You know, the, the, there's an old hymn uh, called The Love of God. It says, the love of God is greater far uh, than tongue or pen could ever tell. It reaches to the highest heaven and to the lowest hell. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made? So the whole ocean is ink and the paper that you get is all the heavens and the skies. To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. <laughs> so I'm going to try to talk to you about the love of God in a few points. It's like, all right, you know, I'll do my best. And the love of God is taught for sure, 
and we need to you know, be informed about that and believe it, but it's also caught. The love of God is something that we want to just not talk about, but experience. But I do want to try. The Lord help us all with this in five different ways, and we'll have to move through each of these relatively efficiently. The first way that Christ loves us, and we're actually going to go, we're going to jump from John 13 to John 17, because actually John 13 to 17 is a chiasm. Anyone know what a chiasm is? Hey, a couple people, amen. It just means the first part corresponds with the second part, and then, or the, the first part corresponds with the end, then the second part corresponds with next to the end, and it moves like an X like that. That was really clear, right? Amen. Anyway, all you need to know is the first part corresponds to the last part. So in John 13, 1, which I want to read here, now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. How does he love us? He loves us to the end. That word there, end, is, it's a tough word to translate. It's the, the goal, the fulfillment, the very purpose of God's love. So what is the purpose of God's love? And that's in John 17, verses 24 and 25. He says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory, that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. Why? So that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. And so that statement... When it says, Jesus says in 13, he's going to love them to the end. What's the goal of Jesus' love for his people? He wants you to experience the kind of love that God the Father has for God the Son. Shut the front door. What am I going to say about that? I'm not qualified in and of myself. I mean, I can tell you, I can testify, I have tasted the love of God. I mean, I think I might have pulled a muscle singing so hard this morning in my stomach. <laughs> I do experience the love of God. But, but I am not qualified to articulate the kind of eternal, powerful, harmonious, pure love that the Father has for the Son. That's where the love of Jesus is moving me? (laughs) You just get glimpses of it here and there in the Scriptures. One is when Jesus got baptized. You know, and the heavens opened up, which means basically the the veil was being torn open, and the Father speaks from heaven. He says, that's my Son, in whom I am well pleased. Just get these little glimpses What must that be like? And Proverbs chapter 8, Lady Wisdom there is is a type of the Christ who is to come. And and she says that she was constantly the joy of the Father before the foundation of the world. That's a witness to how the, the Father loved the Son. He was constantly the Father's joy. And that's when Jesus says he loves us, he's loving us into that. It's something that nothing in the created world can even touch. It's transcendent. (laughs) 
It's almost so high that we can't, but it, and so it is so good that Jesus came down to us to show it to us. The love is faithful and reliable. So, <laughs> that's, yeah. It's so great, some objections should be rising in your heart. At least if you're like me. Okay, so, you know, I got a little bit of cynicism from me. I don't know how Dave avoided it being from upstate New York, but it's like everyone else I've ever met from upstate New York <laughs> has got it. You got it, okay. <laughs> Getting to know him. You might be sitting there thinking, I don't really need that kind of love. It almost sounds like a little much, if we're honest. <laughs> a little indulgent. Let me just offer this for your consideration. The love of God, this great, you know, immersive love of God that Jesus is leading his people to is what I would argue is the love that you always needed but never knew you needed it. And so let me give you an illustration. In 2005, if you guys were even born, I know some young people in here, none of us were walking around thinking, I need a handheld device. that has a map of the entire world, gives me access to every song virtually ever produced, that I can check my email with, shop anywhere on the planet, and play Candy Crush. <laughs> Nobody was saying they needed that. And now we have a really hard time imagining life without our smartphones. Now, I know, I immediately thought, there's probably two people in here and be like, well, I don't have a smartphone. Okay, good for you. Good for you. For the rest of us, we say things like, it would be hard to imagine going back to that. That's how Christians talk. That's how Christians talk about the love of God. They were living their life with other loves and other interests and other things, and then they meet Jesus, and all of a sudden they look back and they're like, I don't know how I live my life apart from the love of God. So, if there's an objection like, well, I don't know if I really need that, I think there's way more for you. I would invite you to explore. So, to the seeker and the skeptic, I would invite you to consider the love of God afresh. And to the saint, I would invite you to wonder at it all over again. There's one other objection before we move on to a couple of the other ways that Jesus loves us. You might be thinking that's too good to be true. It, and if that's your objection, at least you're processing it right. <laughs> like, yep, you heard me right. Almighty God is going to draw me into his love, his Trinitarian love. Wow, that sounds too good to be true. But it's actually quite logical. If, you, if the premise of God's existence is granted, if you believe that God is, then it's very logical and God is love that he would bring his people into that love. And so you might think it's too good to be true. It's actually very logical that he would love us this way. So despite seeming too good to be true, it's not. And here's a C.S. Lewis kind of a question, you know, the author of the Chronicles of Narnia. He's like, don't you at least want it to be true? <laughs> In fact, I would argue that all of the other loves that we experience that bring blessing and joy and peace and comfort into our lives are whispers of the voice ultimately of God's love. And we want 
that kind of belonging and joy and harmony and security. So at least we should want it to be true. So again, to the seeker and to the skeptic, I would invite you to consider the love of God afresh. And to the saint who is struggling to experience all of the fullness of that love, I say take heart. The love of God is durable. His love is strong for you. None of your sin or suffering will keep him from continuing to show his love to you. So, you know, what's Jesus' love like? Well, the goal of it is to bring us into the fellowship of God himself forever. <laughs> Mind-blowing. So we, we got to move on, though, now. So, for real. Um, you know, how does he love us? He loves us sacrificially. So he loves us to the Father. He loves us sacrificially. And so this is John 15, verse 13, where he says, Greater love has no one than this, than that he would lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. Hey, hey, I can't love you anymore. I'm going to lay my life down for you. If you, He says, you're my friends if you do the things that I ask, the things I command. And so at the center of this John 15 passage is this Jesus willing to sacrifice himself for his friends. He left heaven. He lived under political oppression. He was tempted. He was tried. He was forgotten. He was forsaken. All of that sacrifice so that we, his friends who believe on him, trust and obey him, can be set free. That's the kind of love that Jesus has. I mean, we always put the cross and the resurrection, and rightly so, kind of at the center of God's love. But remember, all even that is to get us to the other thing. The cross and the resurrection exist so that we might have the ultimate fellowship with God. You know, one of our mission partners, Alex Kirk, folks from Cornerstone, you'll meet him, you know, kind of eschews this worm theology that just says all the time, I'm awful, I'm terrible, I'm awful, I'm terrible. Yeah, the cross does say that we are sinners in need of grace, but the cross and the resurrection lead us ultimately to the presence. He's leading us to wholeness and fullness. He's sacrificially loving us and laying down his life. Third, he loves us generously. I mean, the willing sacrifice of his life is obviously generous in and of itself. But the son, you know, how much forgiveness does Jesus offer you? You know, <laughs> I sinned this week. Shouldn't be a newsflash. <laughs> Jesus forgave me again. Just over and over and over. Generosity. He's not stingy with his forgiveness. James 1 says that if we lack wisdom, we should ask God who gives wisdom generously. How much strength is Jesus willing to give you? Will he carry you all the way through? Yes, he will. How much you know, wisdom, strength, forgiveness? What about the inheritance that Jesus has planned for you? <laughs> it's like a new heavens and a new earth, and the streets are paved with crystal clear gold? Shut the front door. Right? Come on. Right? Like, that's crazy. Generosity. He loves us faithfully. I mean, when all the chips are down, and there's a lot at stake, and you're in need, and there's nothing you can do about it, and you have a friend or a family member or a loved one come through for you, what does that feel like? Man, your heart just gets knit to them, and you're so blessed, and you're so encouraged because they're faithful. You know, a friend in need is a friend indeed. And those are few and hard to come by. I will say this, though. People always say that. Well, you know, you find out who your true friends are when the chips are down. That's true. 
but most of us can't have more than three friends anyway. It takes a lot of work to have friends. <laughs> okay. Count yourself blessed. And Jesus is the friend that sticks closer than a brother. He promised us all of that blessing, inheritance, peace, and joy, knowing it was going to cost him his life. He promised us, and he kept his promise on the cross. He's faithful. And lastly, he loves us truthfully. This means that the love of Jesus for us is not mere sentimentality or just emotional. Love, by its nature, must be emotional. You know, we, you know, that's the whole illustration of the husband who says, here, I got you these flowers for our anniversary, but I had to. You know, it's like, okay, thank you. You know, so love needs to be emotional, but when God talks about love, he talks about it being with our head, with our heart, and with our hands. Fullness of love from one person to another is emotional, it's volitional, and it's intelligent. You know, you might really like me, and you might actually show up and help, but if the help you offer is wrong, <laughs> you didn't love me well. Jesus loves us truthfully. He's loving us into that presence, which means he is going to confront us in our sin. I mean, Jesus, in this emotional room, I mean, these guys are having a hard time, his disciples. And he challenges them, though, with the truth. Like, they're like, oh, now we believe. And Jesus is like, really, you do? It's like, whoa, easy, Jesus. Like, you're going to betray me? And this way, the love of, of God for us you know, can handle the, the warts and the, the wanderings and even the, the wickedness of our hearts. You know, in John 17, he says that he's going to sanctify us. He's going to make us holy. He's going to continually purify us and make, him, make us like himself. And so just, you know, just step back for a second and think about this love then. To the Father, the faithfulness, the generosity, the sacrifice, the truth. New City, this is what we need to receive. This is the love of Christ received for us. There's a, a preacher in the 18th century, 19th century, excuse me, named Octavius Winslow. There's a quotation up here that kind of just summarizes all of this love of God. There is not a circumstance of our Lord's history which is not another form or manifestation of his love. His incarnation is love stooping. His sympathy is love weeping. His compassion is love supporting. His grace is love acting. His teaching is the voice of love. His silence is the repose of love. His patience is the restraint of love. His obedience is the labor of love. His suffering is the travail of love. His cross is the altar of love. His death is the burnt offering. His resurrection is the triumph of love. His ascension into heaven is the enthronement of love. His sitting down at the right hand of God is the intercession of love. He's praying for us. His spirit is the presence and power of his love, and his inheritance is the perfection of his love. Bring your heart with its profoundest emptiness, its most startling discovery of sin, its lowest frame, its deepest sorrow, and sink it into the depths of the Savior's love. The love you needed that maybe you never knew you had. So, John 13, 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. So now we make the turn here to the love of Christ that we share. What kind of community can this love of Christ create? A truly remarkable countercultural community, I would argue. I would hasten to add, though, 
that it's not a perfect community. And all God's people said, amen, this is not a perfect community. In fact, I would, I would add to that that the love of the church is not equal to the love of Jesus. It's Jesus' love himself. That's what's one of the things so amazing about Jesus' love. There's, there's no mediator between Jesus' love and your heart. You can go to him at any time. Oh, that was one of the generous things I forgot. How generous is Jesus with his time? Constant access. Sorry, that was back to the real point. Okay, anyway. So the church is a necessary context for the love of Jesus, but it's not equivalent to the love of Jesus. And even when church contexts are difficult and disappoint, which, newsflash, they do, Jesus' love is still stronger to sustain and heal and restore and move us forward. So what, what we're called to do then is to reflect this love to one another and to others around us. And there's lots of ways that we could talk about this, but my heart gravitates toward these two ideas uh, that I think are very common. They're kind of like default settings of our hearts, and so I just want to have the love of Jesus address them for us. Number one is self-preservation, and number two is self-interest. That, that's kind of like the default. Like, we kind of live our lives, you know, making sure we don't get hurt, right? Making sure the loved ones around us don't get hurt. We're trying to make sure we stay safe, which is obviously sane, <laughs> okay? It's a good thing to want to be safe and, and to have self-preservation. But when we look at the, the, the mission of Jesus and the love of Jesus, was it a self-preserving love or was it a self-giving love? Say it. Self-giving, yeah. And what makes the most dramatic impact in your life when you're around people who are, and not even necessarily, I'm not saying sinfully so, I'm not saying these are like evil people for, you know, wanting to protect themselves, but what makes the most impact on your life? When you get around someone who gives of themselves and gives of themselves and gives of themselves and gives of themselves to you, what does that do to you? It, it has an impact on you. You don't stay the same when you're around those type of people, and that's how the love of Jesus is. And so the fact that we've received that kind of love, then what needs to happen is little by little, we need to kind of like crack the shell of self-preservation and become a community that is not afraid of giving ourselves. I've been hurt, or it didn't work out, or we, maybe we won't have enough, or all these things, and so we, we get choked. And I'm saying, Jesus is saying, he's come to set us free. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you. You are free to love because you've been loved by the king. And so we want to crack the shell of self-preservation. That's really just not living in fear anymore. Perfect love, 1 John 4, 19, casts out fear. So many of us, myself included, Live in a shadow of fear. And Jesus is saying, do not be afraid. I love you. I've called you to love one another. Do not be afraid to love one another because I love you and it's going to be okay. Everyone say it's going to be okay. That is such a Christian thing to say. If you're not a Christian and you say it's going to be okay, I'm like, you're crazy. You don't know that. But if you're loved by the king, it's going to be okay. And so we are free, brothers and sisters, to love one another. 
So not just fear gets you know, toppled by the love of Christ, but also self-interest or pride. We're very concerned, not all of us, some of us are very, what do people think? What are people going to say? Am I going to get mine? Am I going to get to, you know, have this? And, and so we're concerned about our rank almost. And in John 13, he washes their feet. You guys remember that story? Many of you probably remember that story. John 13, 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and, and you're right, I am. If then I, your teacher and your Lord, have washed your feet, then you also ought to wash one another's feet. I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. What kind of community and congregation, church, would we be if we're liberated from daily regular fears and we're liberated from self-interest? And you're just thinking, how can I bless this person? How can I bless that person? How can I pray for this person? We could give here, not exactly sure how it's all going to work out, but we feel the Spirit leading us to do this, and we're going to give. And then when you, you want to know how this actually worked itself out, read the first few chapters of Acts. How they shared their time and their space and their goods, and they had all things in common. And people on the outside stood around and said, wow, something, those, people, those folk been with Jesus. The kind of love they show is the kind of love Jesus had. And so the love that we share becomes more and more conformed to the person of Jesus. So Jesus pushes back on our self-preservation and our self-interest so that we can be generous. We can be faithful. We can have access to our time and our space and our goods. And so let me give you three things right here to do before we look at the last one, which is the fruit of the love of Christ, which is the shortest point. And that has to do with these things. Many of you receive them. Oh, I don't know where my prayer card went. Bummer. You ain't got a prayer card? There we go. Sweet. You guys probably already saw, but thank you, Devin. Grab one of these. One of the greatest ways that Jesus loved us is that he prayed for us. Take these home and pray for each other. You can see the sermon prayer focus. There's going to be one of these cards every week for the next eight weeks. Praying for one another. It's an incredible form of love. I would say, like I said, three things. Pray or act in love for someone you know well this week. Husband, wife, child, church member, brother, sister. Do something sacrificial and generous for them. Two, pray slash act in love of Christ for someone you don't know. <laughs> That's kind of a dirty trick. First sermon on a merged church Sunday. <laughs> There's lots of folk in here you don't know. We're all wearing name tags. Pick one. <laughs> Pray for them. Send them a card. And number three, pray and act in love of Christ for someone who you know is different than you and disagrees with you on an issue. That's actually made it to the prayer card. If we love those who love us back, Jesus says you're no better than the sinners. When I preach that, I say gang members do that. Gang members love each other. <laughs> We're a different kind of gang. We're a Jesus gang. <laughs> Lastly, what happens when a community lives this way? 
there's this dynamic exchange that happens between Christ and his people, receiving his love and then sharing it with one another. Well, first of all, we get the joy and peace of belonging. It's like, man, I've never been a part of a community like that. It's been wonderful. I've lived in community like that, and I'm so grateful to God for it. Not perfect, but experiencing the love, the faithfulness, the generosity, the kindness, the forgiveness. I've experienced all of that in the body of Christ, and it is a joy. Praying this morning with folks, it's the best company to keep. These are the people of the king. Two things happen, though, specifically when we live this way. Number one, and it's right here in the text, it, it says that, that our identity is confirmed. <laughs> it's like a parent with a child. You know, oh, they run like you. Oh, they look like you. They move like you. Yeah, well, they're connected to me. Oh, you love like this. You, oh, that's Jesus. Yep, we, we definitely belong to him because we act like him. We don't belong to him because we say we do. Just profess it. We belong to him because we act like him. His very life and presence and love is in us and works itself, himself, out of us. So our identity as followers of Jesus is established and made known. Something else remarkable happens, though. John chapter 17, in verse number um, 20, I don't ask for these, he's praying for them praying for those who will believe, that we all may be one, verse 21. So love, that we'd be unified, that we'd love one another, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Okay, same context. That they may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Not only is our identity established, oh yeah, they belong to Jesus because they love like Jesus, but Jesus' very identity is established. Oh, he really is a Savior. Oh, he really did rise from the dead. We verify the reality of Jesus being alive by how we love. And so when we don't love, the world mocks us. You're not any different than us. Which is why that third thing is so important. Love people who are different than you. Love people who disagree with you. Listen, be patient, and all that. Different sermon. But the very reality of Jesus' presence is affirmed and established when we love one another. Wow. So here's what I'd say to conclude. To the saints, I would say pray. The good news is that the, you pray for the power of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is what's the first one? Love. So we've been given what we need in the person of Jesus, in the person of the Spirit. Ask for love, and he will pour his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So we can do this. We can be faithful. We can overcome greed. We can overcome pride. We can be generous. All that stuff that sounds kind of hard, yes, but don't be afraid. We can do it because Jesus is alive. He's given us his Spirit. And that's what I would say to the saints and to the seekers and to the skeptics. I would say... And this is kind of a backdoor challenge to us here at New City. Come and see. We say we're a church. We say we worship the risen Jesus. Come and see. See how we love one another. See if we care about each other. See if we pray for each other. See if God works. And if he does, join us. We'd love for you to join us. Brothers and sisters, let's love one another because God loves us. We indeed are a city on a hill.
whose light shines. But let's make no mistake. We're not the source of that light. That engine is Jesus himself. His light is shining. And the energy of our light is the love of Jesus himself that sets our heart aflame. Freely we have received, so may we freely give. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love for us in Jesus. Help us to receive it. In Jesus' name, amen.